Before we get started, I want to take the opportunity to talk about our partner for this podcast, BravoPay. BravoPay is a marketplace and payment platform for musicians and content creators like streamers, sports influencers, personal trainers, and, well, podcasters. You can create a fan page on their app and set up shop offering physical and digital products as well as premium subscriptions. It's easy to share your Bravo link with others on your social media so that, for the rest of you, can support your favorite creators. Check it out at app.trybravo.com. I'll also leave a link in the description. You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Welcome everybody to The 80-20 Show. I am your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Emily White. Now, Emily has an extensive background, but the highlights are managing the Dresden Dolls and her friendship with Amanda Palmer, interning with Live Nation and VH1 Classic, working with Madison House, starting her own label and entertainment agencies, that's plural, wrote two books, started two podcasts, and is the founder of the I Voted Festival, which last year was the world's largest digital music event. We discuss all these steps in her journey and many more. For anyone listening right now, if you're wondering how people become so successful in the music industry, this is the person to look up to. It is my pleasure and honor to give you Emily White. Hey, Emily, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. My pleasure. I, I, I know we've been talking about this for a while now about being on the podcast, so I really do appreciate you taking the time um, to talking with me. Yeah, definitely. Psyched to be here. So we are going to go back to the beginning here. Uh, I always like to do that with all of my guests and uh, talk about how you decided to uh, pursue, pursue a career in music. How did you get started? Yeah, I mean, I think like many people, like music was my life growing up. It was my dream to work and be in the music industry and just be surrounded by music all the time and support artists. Um, But at the same time, I didn't know anyone in the music industry when I started. I'm originally from Wisconsin and um, I found Northeastern University's music business program. And at the time, there weren't a ton of music business programs out there. There's definitely way more now. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a swimming scholarship to go there. And Um, I also really wanted to go to school in a city. Um, I was from a suburb of Milwaukee and I was obsessed with Britpop bands growing up and I felt like they always skipped over Milwaukee. They come to Milwaukee a little bit more now because we have way better concert promoters at this point. But um, yeah, Northeastern was just the perfect school. I loved their music business program. We alternated semesters going to school and interning. They call it co-oping. Like I said, loved going to school in a city. And um, yeah, that's really where I got my start through internships and and going to Northeastern. That's amazing. So uh, because I noticed, too, that you were uh, had quite a bit of accomplishments in swimming. So have you thought were you trying to debate between, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, pursuing a career in in athleticism in comparison to music or is music always your goal? Yeah, I mean, it was always music. Um, I I mean, I was like maybe on the bubble of making the Olympic trials, but there still would have been 50 women ahead of me and they take the top two. So I was never yeah. going to be a pro athlete or anything like that. Um, although my parents and grandfather um, are all swim coaches. So when I was a kid, I was like, does this mean I'm supposed to be a swim coach too? I do manage some Olympic swimmers and I work in the Olympic swimming space. But no, I was 
ride or die music. I was like the weird kid on the swim team always talking about artists. So that's amazing. You know, it's it's interesting too because growing up, um, you know, I you know never was a like athlete by any means i was definitely the nerdy kid i play video games and things like that that was always my video start, games but are athlete you know that that's sports hey that's sports now right yeah. i you know i sometimes wish that i was born like 20 years later <laughs> because these days like playing video games is now a cool thing to do i mean back back in my back in my day that was not the uh that was definitely not really the cool thing to do or all the cool kids did play video games, but they didn't tell anybody else except for their best friends that they play video games. Amazing. That was, that was kind of the time. But um, yeah, I originally I wanted to be a music uh, music teacher. That was what I was going to go down the path until I found a passion in um, entrepreneurship. So mm-hmm. very much same thing. My uh, my aunt and uncle are were both music teachers as well. So that was kind of part of the family was to go into uh, teaching. That's great. I love it. So I noticed too that when you were majoring um, in the music business, you did quite a number of internships during that time frame. Was that something that the college arranged for you or did you take that initiative to find those internships? Yeah, good question. Um, I did a lot of internships in college because I did, I, I, like I said, I was ride or die music, but I didn't know what I wanted to do within the industry. So I was obsessed with like, figuring out the options and, and kind of finding out. Um, in hindsight, that's just a, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of moving out of management, but I've been a manager for a long time. In hindsight, that's a great way to become a manager because you understand all facets of the industry. But I mean, I think that would be supportive, you know, for anything in the industry. And I also remember hearing quite a few times from professors how small the music industry is, which obviously something you and I understand now, but um, kind of naively, but not at the time I thought, well, then I'm going to get to know everyone. Um, So yeah, my first internship was at Powderfinger Promotions, which does college radio promo in Boston. I had like amazing bosses, Dave Avery and Winifred Chain. Win is still one of my best girlfriends to this day. And they asked me to stay on. We were on the quarter system then. Um, and even at that young age, I thought I don't want to do the same internship twice because I want to meet as many people as possible and I want to get as much experience as possible. So it worked to my advantage that we were on the quarter system and not semesters. And also like that following summer, I got two internships and I, which was a good problem to have. I didn't know what to do. So I ended up interning three days a week at a big rock radio station, WBCN, rest in peace. Um, and then at an indie label in Somerville, which is right outside of Boston. So I was able to kind of double up, but to answer your question, um, I got my first internship through the school's database. That was Powderfinger. Um, I'd never heard of it before, so it wasn't necessarily like some dream internship, but it ended up being super awesome. Like I said, I mean, Dave, you know, Dave Avery is amazing. And Winifred took me, she was like, Hey, Dave just got passes to this new thing called Bonnaroo. Do you want to go with me? You know, like. So she took me to my first Bonnaroo, I mean, literally the first Bonnaroo, and we were show buddies and and all that good stuff. So um, yeah, each internship and really job experience in my life, um, one thing led to another. So I got my first internship through the school, but everything else came through my my own network and just meeting people. That's amazing. So uh, what are the things that from your uh, time um, doing all these different internships, what are some of the lessons that you've learned during that time? I mean... um, I'm an author, as you know, and my first book is called Interning 101. And really the Cliff's Notes version of Interning 101 is to make yourself indispensable. Um, as you know, I met a band called the Dresden Dolls um, kind of a few internships in. 
Um, they were a local Boston band, uh, but definitely on the rise. And I'd seen them play a few times. I thought they were amazing. And they played at Northeastern. We have a little, in non-pandemic times, um, you know, all ages, non-alcoholic club called After Hours, where artists get paid really well. So book your bands at After Hours at Northeastern, um, which means we would get really good talent. So the Dresden Dolls was, uh, were playing um, my school. And I was super nervous, but I introduced myself to Amanda Palmer, the singer at the merch table. And I just said, hi, you know, like, I'm a music business major. I'm interning at WBCN and writing for Scope Magazine. Let me know if you ever need help with anything. And again, I was super nervous to ask that. And Amanda's like, can you come over tomorrow? And it turned out she lived like a 10 minute walk from campus and this amazing, you know, artist commune. And I really grew up professionally with that band um, so much so that they built me into their management contract when they eventually signed with a really amazing management company. Um, so my point is, is the Dresden Dolls are a duo. Um, I would never say I was the third member of that band, but certainly functioning with me was a lot easier than functioning without me. So that's, I mean, that's fundamentally the most important thing. But, um, you know, parallel to that is just learning every, you know, rung of the ladder, every step as you go. You know, I did every task well. I did it with joy. I wasn't above anything. And that's how I know how to do all this stuff, you know, like, anyone that tries to skip steps, like that's going to kind of bite them in the ass later because then you don't know how to do certain things. So it's really important to understand how like each brick kind of fits into the building. And so did you, um, by the time that you were managing the Dresden Dolls, um, you, you obviously have some now uh, structure behind you between your education as well as the internships, but were there things that you were learning on the go while, while you were managing them? Oh, 100%. Yeah, like I said, we, we completely grew up professionally together. Um, I remember I was at Amanda's house probably in 2003 or something, and um, I was going to be on co-op that following semester and the band was going on their first national tour, which I put in quotes because it was totally self-booked. Um, but South by Southwest was also on it. And so I said to nice. Amanda, um, hey, I've always been interested in interested in tour managing. Um, I'd love to do that for you guys. And I admitted, like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I could at least sell your merch. And um, she said, that's a band decision. You know, I have to check with Brian and so a week went by and I didn't hear anything. And I was telling my friends like, oh my gosh, I might be going to South by. Um, and so like, yeah, I was at Amanda's house and I said, hey, did you get a chance to talk to Brian about me tour managing? And he was in the other room and, and she's like, oh, I totally forgot. And she was like, hey, Brian, can Emily be our tour manager? And he's like, yeah, that's cool. And that was it. <laughs> so yeah, that first tour was amazing. Um, you know, in my head, I kind of I like mocked like, okay, we're we have a show at Big Bill's Barbecue in Carbondale, Illinois, and Gino's Sports Bar in Boone, North Carolina. And those two shows ended up being the most memorable because they were booked by college students who weren't allowed to book shows on campus. So these were places off campus that they could book shows. They were packed. They were sold out. Um, so yeah, we 100% grew professionally together. Um, so much so that I graduated, but I didn't walk in my graduation ceremony because we were at Coachella that day starting like a three continent tour with Nine Inch Nails. And I remember wow. um, we did a warm up show at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco the night before that Nine Inch Nails tour. And um, the Dresden Dolls uh, were with a, man a really great management company called Madison House, whose biggest client um, still is String Cheese Incident. And String Cheese Incident's tour manager was there. His name's Chewy Smith. And he really became my tour managing mentor. And he said to me, 
you know, the night before we went on that tour, he's like, you know, anytime you need anything, like just call me night or day if you need to vent or whatever. Um, well, I ended up calling him like the next day. <laughs> and I remember like being in tears, like on the tour bus, like that first week when there's so many things going on and like business managers back in New York are like demanding spreadsheets and I'm dealing with like Nine Inch Nails super intense production manager being upset about something or whatever. So um, but within three years, I retired from tour managing because I'd really mastered it. And I knew, you know, most of these venues and hotels better than my neighborhood in Brooklyn. So yes, I did learn as I go. And, and I feel like Amanda and Brian felt the same way, which was really ideal because um, they were kind of able to mold me and I was able to learn with um, such a brilliant band who was really on the rise to having a global fan base. That's amazing. And that's such a quite a bit jump too. And I want to make sure that um, we expand upon that, upon that a little bit more because, you know, sometimes, you know, it's people think, oh, yeah, you do this, you put in the hard work and then all of a sudden you become, you know, su you know super successful. And there's so much more nuance that it comes to that because there are so many people out there that work just as hard, if not harder, and they still don't, you know, even get even remotely that far. So what do you think was some of the catalysts that got the Dresden Dance Dolls to the point where you skipped your graduation because you're on Coachella and co-touring with Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, well, from the artist's perspective, making great art and connecting with your fans. And that's something that Amanda and Brian have done really well from day one, you know, years before people were talking about it at conferences and things like that. Um, we were really big on collecting email addresses and data. You know, that's really what allowed Amanda... Um, to raise, you know, the most money ever for a musician on Kickstarter over a million dollars because she had that database of direct-to-fan connections. So that was really important. Um, but yes, yeah, like as far as the industry stuff goes, um, you know, it was really saying yes to everything. You know, like I said, I wasn't above anything. Um, not, I mean, not that I don't think anyone should be above this stuff, but, you know, whether we were putting together, and this is, again, this is like where the industry and the artistry combines, like whether I was putting together like really nice, um, you know, hand packaged merch bundles, you know, that, that Amanda had designed for the fans or uh, making sure our merch table was super gorgeous. Like I remember talking to a student a few years ago who wanted to tour manage and she said, Oh, I guess I'll just suck it up and do merch for a while. And I was like, suck it up. Like, you know, like merch, I get really emotional about merch and um, you know, it's changed obviously more in, in kind of the digital social media world, but you know, you're really like the first point of entry between the fan and the band. So you don't want someone grumpy, you know, you want it to look nice and, and you want someone to be engaging. So that's really important. And again, you need to learn all those steps along the way, because, you know, like, how can you be an effective boss if you can't empathize with what it's like to be in that role? And I remember having lunch one day on that Nine Inch Nails tour with um, one of their lighting designers. And he said, you know, do you know why our production manager is so good at his job? And I was like, no. And he said, because he's done all of our jobs before, you know? So again, it's just really important to say yes to everything. You know, you'll learn real fast if it's better for you to remain a fan. And that's totally okay because you know better than anyone, like this is a ton of work, you know? And there's not always, it, it's not really about like glamour or whatever. It's like being a geek about the work, working super hard. I remember um, there's a manager on our team named Han Kim, and I've known him since he was in grad school. And um, one, one day he said, yeah, I got, we're managing an artist from the UK. And he's like, yeah, I got up early. I knocked out all my emails. I was like all high on that. And I'm like, oh, this guy's a lifer, you know, like he's all pumped about like writing emails to Europe at 8am or whatever. So, um, 
yeah, like I said, it's just saying yes to everything. And, and you'll know pretty quickly if it's just like, oh, this, this really feels like grunt work or, oh, wow, I, I could see myself doing this forever. I totally agree. I loved it when uh, get, just getting started with 8020 Records. One of the things I loved was to run the merch table and would take the time and like position everything and spread everything out and, you know, making it really, uh, you know, an, you know, a fun experience and helping the bands come up with the signage and all those things. I, that always was something that I that I really, really enjoyed um, to do. And, some you know, sometimes it can be grueling, too, because you're there for like several hours and sometimes the venues are really, really cold inside. And no. you know that you have to be there until the very, very end, until at least a half hour to an hour afterwards as everyone's leaving, just to see if anybody else was just waiting um, to, you know, to get that piece of merchandise. And and also, you know, connect, making sure that the, you know, sometimes because the band forgets too, like reminding them like, hey, come over to the merch booth, hang out with your fans and, yep. and make sure that you're connecting with them. Absolutely. So, yeah, it does. I totally agree with you. It's like you, you try try to do everything you know put your hands in all the different pots and try to understand it and uh i agree i i got started by writing reading i didn't even go to uh, school for music business i just bought two books one on record label marketing and one on music law and the record label marketing book i went through it and went okay these things make sense okay these things don't make sense any longer or these things i can't do but we're gonna figure something else out and we just kind of you know went with the flow of things and just learned as we went and you just nailed it. It's about figuring things out, right? Like there isn't necessarily always a right or wrong answer. It's, it's what makes the most sense and then moving forward with that. And connecting with the right people, because yes. that's the other thing too, is because there is something to be said about wisdom. And that's something that never take for granted, uh, even to this day, is is listening to others and hearing what their experiences are. And it's amazing how similar some people's paths are to your own and it does help you avoid certain pitfalls but at the same token too it does uh make you think about other kinds of possibilities for yourself a hundred percent and i mean like we said it's like the music industry is super small and um it's really easy to be um super intense and kind of passionate about things at first but like um you know, I, I think we connected with you through Kevin Lyman initially, and Kevin's always reminding me like long game, long game, you know? Um, and that's really important for people getting started to understand too. It's just like, if you're a young manager, like, I mean, I don't think I've ever really been like a yeller screamer, but it's like, you know, you want to build relationships and not just fight to the death on behalf of your artists. That's actually going to hurt them in the long run. Cause you're going to get this reputation for being like super intense and not wanting to like work things out with people. And like you said, it, you know, it just it just comes back around like it's such a small industry. So those relationships are really key. Absolutely. I like to always tell my story about and every, it's funny. Everyone who's met Kevin Lyman says is there's, there's a story of how you met Kevin Lyman. And my story with Kevin is for years I've been trying to get our artists onto Warp Tour. And, you know, obviously that's a, such a, a hard ask to do unless you really have traction behind your band. Um, but I found out over the years about the fact that Kevin is always the one that choose, selects which artists make Warp Tour, both the top headliners all the way down the down the rung. Like he's the one who selects every single one of them, and I very much respected that. Yeah. And so every single year I would try, and I would either you know get get to a dead end and things like that, which I totally get and understand. That's you know there's they're bombarded by people trying to get onto Warp Tour, and then one time I decided to ch- change my approach up, and I knew who his assistant was. So I reached out to them directly and said, Hey, I'm coming into Los Angeles. 
you know, would love to just meet Kevin. I'll come down to the office just like 15, 20 minutes. You know, just want just to want to say hello. And I emailed them almost like every other week, like to the point where it wasn't like it was persistent, but not annoying. Sure. And didn't get an answer until the day I was leaving. I tried one more time. I said, you know what? I, I was about to give up. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try one more time. Yeah. Within an hour, I got a response. Okay, can you meet Kevin next week? I didn't care what my schedule was. Yeah. I just said yes. I'll be there. I'll be there. And all of a sudden, before I know it, I'm at Kevin's house, hanging out outside, and he's coming off the call about how next year's the last year of Warp Tour. And so we just started chatting, and just the nicest guy, he asked me questions about 8020. I had some questions about Warp Tour. And um, the following day, it literally, it was the day I was leaving back to Phoenix. And the following day, I get this email from some other person that says, hey, uh, I'm, I share an office with Kevin, and he mentioned that you're a really cool guy, so just figured I would reach out. And that person's Michael Kaminsky. Nice. And so, Mike, so Michael and I started building a relationship and a friendship because Kevin reached out to mention about me. Exactly. And because of that reason, I will always be forever grateful to Kevin. Also for the fact he did get two of our R's on to Warp Tour, but... Um, besides that, I uh, will always be forever grateful for him for, you know, literally somebody that really didn't have anything to give to him that he gave back to me. And I always make sure to pay those things in kind. And anytime that Kevin has something in the works, um, I always pay attention to those things. And hence case the point by I voted, I saw both Kevin and, um, I think a mutual friend of ours, Kate, um, posted about it. And so I took a look at it and thought, this is a really cool thing. And that's when I connected to them and they connected me with the rest of your team was because they they did that post about them being involved with the I Voted Festival. Yeah, Kevin is like beyond the real deal. Like, and, you know, not to dispel any fantasies here, but there's a lot of names who are not, you know what I mean? And, but my God, does Kevin walk the walk? Um, but again, that, you know... I point this out because it's just a reminder to, again, like be genuine, be nice to everyone, because I feel like assistants run the world very often. So a lot of times people try to, you know, get to like the partner or whoever. And um, there's so many amazing people in the music industry. But Kevin is a name that is like the real deal. So, yes, like um, all hail Kevin Lyman. That's for sure. It's totally true. And that's the other thing, too, that I love what you mentioned is the fact that, you know, try to build relationships, not with the with the ultimate decision makers, yeah. but everyone along the line, because they usually will listen to to the rest of their team about yeah. what's going on. I, I know I certainly do. So I you know, you want to be friendly with those people. You want to connect with those people. You want to build friendships with those people and again because you don't know where those where they're going to lead i've seen so many where they were an assistant at one point Mm -hmm. well now they're the talent buyer or now they have their own company or now you know they're the vp because that's how it works is that they went up they went up the chain and they decided to pivot and shift accordingly because they were serious about the careers and they were using that position as a starting point for themselves so you said it best it's it's about the long game right it's all about the long game. I always, in non-pandemic times, I always introduce myself to interns, everyone in the office, um, because I remember what it was like. But you're exactly right. That comes back around like, oh, I'm an agent here now, or I'm doing this, or whatever. So it's just amazing. Absolutely. 
So um, to go back to um, the Dresden Dolls, and then you, um, at this point, went on to actually work directly with Madison House. Can you talk about that transition? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, like I said, I did a million internships in college all over pretty much the Boston music in, um, the Boston music scene. I worked at you know different venues. Um, I did an internship in New York um, at VH1, but then I came back to Boston. That's when I met the Dresden Dolls and really immersed myself in that. I also did an internship in London, um, which was really great. Um, also at MTV, the dolls were really supportive of that. They're like, go, oh, this is your dream. Um, but we're here when you come back. So that was an amazing situation. But yeah, so they really started to take off. And um, I remember they had like a showcase in New York at Joe's Pub and the guest list was um, just wild with industry people, you know, and because um, they were deciding on a manager and they were getting signed, signed to Roadrunner and um, I'm forever grateful to this day that they went with Mike Luba, who's the founding partner at Madison House and just a brilliant uh, visionary. And um, Mike is uh, secure enough where, um, you know, he was like, oh, wow, like Emily will help where I feel like maybe some people would be kind of threatened by someone who is so hands on. Um, so, yeah, so I knew I wanted to tour manage, but not forever. Um, so we worked it out where I would tour manage the band, you know, go all, go all over the world with them. But then when I wasn't on the road, and this was right when I graduated, um, I would work at Madison House and do day-to-day for the band. And actually, I remember we were at KCRW in Los Angeles kind of the spring before I graduated. And Luba just said to me, um, yeah, when you graduate, you'll come work for me at Madison House in New York. And that was it. Like, that's how I got my first job out of college. Like, it wasn't posted anywhere. I didn't apply, you know, to anything. Again, it was like I made myself indispensable to that band, and Luba saw the value of my work. So um, that that was perfect because um, some people may know or may not know tour managers are paid by the band. So the Dresden Dolls would pay me when I was on tour. And then when I would, um, was off the road at uh, Madison House, um, they, the management company would pay me. So each entity kind of was paying a part time to create a full time position. Um, and that's really where I got my management chops. And I'm, I'm really grateful because um, Madison House you know, is a really forward thinking company. Um, They were doing, you know, direct to fan and having their own label and merch and in-house PR and even their own travel agency for artists and fans. Again, way before anyone was talking about this stuff at at conferences. So um, yeah, I've I've been, I'm really fortunate that that's who the Dresden Dolls chose as management because Madison House really instilled in me like building a business around the artists and taking care of fans a very close second. And that's, always um been kind of the ethos behind my career absolutely i totally agree uh that's always been a philosophy of 8020 records as well was uh we always decided to start where you know we would try to give as much humanly back as possible to the artists and that was always the philosophy hence 8020 records we give 80 percent royalties back yeah, like that was amazing. the whole mythos of you know of uh 80 or ethos excuse me of 820 records was that and yeah, you know, same thing is true. And then a close second was taking care of uh, fans. I remember even um, when we started back in 2008, where um, it was, you know, a, considered a no-no to download music illegally. I said, you know what, we're not, we're going to put all our music up onto, you know, into uh, LimeWire and Napster and all those different places because for us, we would rather, you know, we'd rather it come from us than somebody else that's uploading it that may not be the proper quality or format. And if that was a way to market ourselves yep. to get people to to acquire fans, then so be it. So we. Same thing is like we want to make sure that not only were the artists taken care of, but also the fans as well, making sure that we were not preventing that 
uh, relationship between the artists and their fans. Very forward thinking. I like it. No, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always trying. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so you were then working at Madison House, getting all this experience and so forth. And then at some point, you decided to venture off on your own and start your own company. So can you talk more about what made you decide? Yeah, there was a really natural evolution in there. So um, like I said before, I um, I kind of got sick of tour manager. I, I wouldn't say I got sick of it, but I wasn't challenged by it anymore. And it was perfect timing because Luba and his business partner at the time um, needed help with more artists. So they're like, come off the road. You know, we have plenty of work for you to do. So then I became full time at Madison House and I was just doing my thing, you know, working super hard during the day, going to shows at night. Um, at the same time I had seen, I mean, this is where this idea came from. I had seen, um, a fan come up to Amanda at a show. And again, this was around like 2008, 2007. So like, you totally remember this era. And this fan gave Amanda a check for like, I want to say $500, maybe it was $300 or something, but it was a few hundred dollars. Um, just being like, I just want to support you and your art. And she had her first solo album coming out. And I was like, and again, like this was the era of like, I, you know, instant messaging zip files back and forth with friends and colleagues and stuff. And I was like, why can't we just post her album as a zip file and do like a suggested donation? Like, why are we limiting ourselves to $9.99 on iTunes, let alone, you know, this was pre-streaming, but now, you know, streaming royalties. Um, I knew the label would never let us do it, but I kind of wrote a business plan around that. And Luba's like, this is brilliant. Let's get on the phone and talk about it. Um, his business partner was like, this will never work, you know, go back to working on your bands. And I remember I was like about to go to bed one night, got out my Blackberry and I saw Left Set send an email like click this, which sounds like spam, but it's not. And it was Radioheads in Rainbows doing the exact same concept. So I yep. went into work the next day and my naysaying boss, um, his favorite band is Radiohead. So he was like, Radiohead stole your idea. Like that was his like acknowledgement of like, maybe <laughs> that was a pretty good idea. So um, Lubo was actually leaving Madison House to go work at Live Nation Artists, which was a half a billion dollar division of Live Nation, where the first signees were Madonna, U2, Jay-Z, Zach Brown Band, um, and Bob Ezrin, who produced Pink Floyd's The Wall, amongst a million other things, and as a total visionary, was heading up the recording division. So Luba passed along um, my business plan for the Name Your Own Price model to Ezrin. Um, and long story short, I ended up, this was, this was all in Miami. So I ended up accepting this job and moving to Miami. Um, I was 24 and going into it, I was like, this is either going to be the biggest thing ever or a big disaster. But if it's a disaster, it'll be a great learning experience. I kind of viewed it as grad school. Um, I mean, it was amazing for the first few months. It was just like this think tank. Cause again, you remember this era, like everything was shifting yep. to digital and there was a lot of excitement and there was a lot of new ideas. So um, yeah, my bosses would just encourage me to experiment and, and try new things, which was really cool. Um, and I worked on Zach Brown Band down there, which was great. Um, but that venture lasted seven months. Um, they ended up laying everyone off. Um, I was totally freaked out at the time. I mean, it's a blip on the radar, but I always try to slow that part down to remind people like, you know, you're going to get laid off, you're going to get fired, like crazy things will happen. And like, you're honestly barely going to remember it. Um, so at that point, Luba and Ezrin sat me down separately and they're like, look, you know, all sides of this business, like there's artists who want you to manage them. Like you should move back to New York and start a management company. And they're like, you're welcome to stay with us, but, uh, we're blocked by a huge non-compete and we can't do music for like two years. Um, so that's exactly what I did. I, I had to stick around in Miami for a few more months because of my lease. We did get Live Nation to pay for that though. So that was great. 
um, picked up, moved back to New York. Um, I reached out to um, a colleague at the time. And I say that because um, I have a lot of friends in the industry, but this person I didn't know super well. Um, and I'm dating myself, but it was it was uh, Margaret Cho's manager. And I was managing Amanda, Amanda Palmer. And I said, this is the part I'm dating myself on. I said, hey, we should do a MySpace artist on artists with Amanda and Margaret because they're friends. And by the way, I'm starting a management company. And uh, Margaret's manager wrote back and was like, no way, I'm starting a management company too. Let's be business partners. And I was like, what? I don't even know this person, but this is amazing. I mean, for context, you know, like Amanda could sell out um, Webster Hall in New York City, which is like 1500 capacity, but Margaret was selling out Radio City Music Hall, which was 3500 capacity. So I was like, gosh, why would this woman want to work with me? And so Carrie called me um, and said, you know, I've always respected you and your work, which is also hilarious because Margaret was, and um, you know, we met because Margaret had emceed a big Dresden Dolls DVD shoot in London a few months prior where everything that went wrong could have, like Luba wasn't there. My assistant wasn't there. Like the venue had just reopened after 30 years. Our guest list was strewn aside. Like it was, they changed, they cut the production schedule by an hour, like a few hours before when I had like every minute scheduled. And, and then I was like, great. Now we have like Margaret Cho here, a real celebrity with like her real manager instead of our like hippie jam band, whatever. And um, I don't know, I was holding a clipboard and I guess I, I mean, my tour managing motto used to be that it always works out, which is true. So. Yes. I use the same exact motto. <laughs> exactly. Every single time when we do an event, I'm like, you know what? Things are going to, like, there's always two inherent truths, right? One is that something, at least one thing's going to go wrong. And yes. two, everything is going to work out anyway. Exactly. Like, those are the two main things I always say about running events. Yes. So somehow um, I impressed Carrie enough um, where she said she'd always respected me. And then she also said that Margaret's next album that she wanted to do was a musical comedy album with a bunch of her favorite artists. And she didn't know how to go about that. And I was like, Oh, I do. And I know a bunch of these people personally or their managers or whatever. So I told her, I was like, you know, we're like eloping. Like we don't know each other that well. Again, it was a no brainer for me. Um, yeah. So we launched white Smith entertainment in 2008 or so we managed musicians and comedians. I expanded into sports into 2012. Um, it was so cool having a comedy business partner. Um, Carrie has a hat. I mean, she's left entertainment. We're all good personally, but um, yeah, she has an amazing eye for talent. You know, we managed W. Kamau Bell. We had writers on John Oliver. And I really loved kind of being the spouse business partner to comedy. You know, like I, we would go to comedy events early on and like comedians would try to network with me. And I was like, I can't really help you. But um, I definitely learned a lot through that experience. So um, yeah, so Carrie left management in 2018 or so. Um, so I partnered with um, some protégés from Whitesmith and launched Collective Entertainment around that time and said, you know, on one hand, I want this to be whatever you want. And it certainly has expanded into that, which I'm really proud of. Um, but I said, on the other hand, we're just moving our music and sports divisions over. So our newer company is new, but it also feels like I've been doing this a uh, super long time because I have. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Sometimes you you kind of transition within, and then in some cases yeah. you transition outside, right? And you know, even in the case of eighty twenty records, what we have like what we are about and what we do has fundamentally changed as we just decided to keep the name the whole time through, right? And um, but yeah, because you know your interests change, your the opportunities that are available change, the environment changes, so you have to adapt along with it. And I think it's extremely important to be aware of those things, too, is that you can't always hold on to the past of what, even if it worked for you then, doesn't necessarily guarantee it's going to work for you now, nor is it something that you want to continue doing. 
I mean, that literally is the music industry and literally is entrepreneurship, you know, like um, I've been teaching or guest lecturing at a management class at Appalachian State this semester. And a student was like, well, what do you do when you make all these plans for an artist? And then there's a pandemic. And I was like, that's literally the entire music industry. Like there's Napster, there's Shift to Digital, you know, like plans are always changing. And obviously what happened, you know, in 2020 is like massively disruptive, but um, you just have to pivot and you have to figure it out and, and do what makes the most sense. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Emily, and I would love to actually have a conversation about the impact from, you know, from the pandemic in 2020 is that uh, I'm always a very uh, half glass full person than half glass empty. I'm a very optimistic person. Um, so I always try, even at the most dire of situations, look for the the silver lining, if you will. And there are so many people that have lost jobs and have lo- lost so much. And uh, I, you know, really do feel for those people. Um, but I did see, you know, try to see some of the good things that come out of it. One, some of the things that I've seen is that a lot of artists took this time to self-reflect and to take care of themselves. I've also seen a number of uh, projects that just were not going anywhere. Um, and sometimes what happens is that when you take a step back, you decide whether this is still a, a path for you or not. And some people then decided that they no longer wanted to be in music. Some decided uh, some, you know, bunch of bands, including the one I was ironically managing, end up breaking up. But I think that's a good thing because if they are already in that kind of mindset, before the pandemic, then it kind of forced the issue. And sometimes it's better than than feeling obligated in playing the next show or going on tour or releasing the next album. It kind of gave everyone that that time to reflect. And because of that, and I'm seeing that now in this year already, is that new projects are now being formed. And now more and more people are now going back into recording and new partnerships and collaborations are being now created because it gave the, everybody the uh, time to really kind of take a step back for a second and to really think about what they want to do moving forward and how to adapt, which is no question fundamentally going to change the music industry for years to come. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, at the same time, like, and I think this is my tour managing background a little bit, like we've always kind of worked remotely and, you know, been pretty nimble. So when this happened, like I'm based in New York, um, my business partner's in Florida. Um, so we've always had pretty good communication systems. Uh, we work with pretty savvy artists, you know? So um, we manage an artist named Julia Nunes who um, had been releasing a song um, on the first of every month before the pandemic. And so she has immense compassion for everything that's happened. But when the pandemic hit, she was kind of like, okay, is it the first yet? A, a new song and video she was actually releasing. Um, and of course she had a canceled tour, but then was, you know, planned a big webcast. And, um, you know, she had, that's actually still coming up and she's going to make a bunch of big announcements there and have like, you know, an exclusive piece of merch that knowing her is some inside joke she'll say from stage, you know? So it's like, you just adapt with the times. And as you know, that's what we did with our, I voted initiative. Um, so yeah, you just have to, I mean, I know it's, it's totally easier said than done, but you have to pivot, you have to figure it out. And, you know, artists are always going to find a way to create and it's our jobs as industry people to be able to communicate that to as many people as possible. So it's interesting that you brought up the I voted festival. So was that before the pandemic hit, was that always a plan to have it as all in-person events or was there always going to be a digital component? Yeah, it was. Um, so we started it in 2018. It was just myself and an intern. 
Um, I'm originally from Wisconsin, as I mentioned, where the 2016 election was decided by 22,000 votes and change. Um, it was decided by 10,000 votes next door in Michigan. And so my brain was kind of like, those are arenas. Um, why don't we put together some sort of sit concert and tie in voting? If, you know, basically a venue can have that much of an impact. So we activated over 150 venues in 37 states for the 2018 midterm elections to let fans in on election night who showed a selfie from outside their polling place. Um, all these amazing artists performed, all these venues, all these promoters got on board. Everyone was super into it. So yeah, so for 2020, um, we were totally planning on in-person. I wanted to throw big arena shows and swing states. And I, I mean, I was holding arenas. Um, so then when the pandemic happened, it just seemed like a really natural pivot um, you know, in, into doing a webcast. And I'm, I'm so glad we did because we potentially reached more people. Um, we, I mean, we had over 400 artists. So it was the largest, uh, it was like 450 artists. So it was like the largest digital um, concert in history. And obviously we couldn't have 450 artists on a bill, you know, if we're at an right. in-person venue. So it just allowed us to really target what fans are listening to where. Um, and fans access the stream um, by RSVPing with a selfie at home with their blank and unmarked ballot or from outside their polling place. If a fan wasn't 18, they could RSVP by letting us know what election they will be 18 for and why they're excited to vote. And if they are an international fan, um, they could let us know which artist they could RSVP by letting us know which artist they are most excited to check out. So, yeah, we were able to I, I don't want to say seamlessly pivot because it was so much work. We had over 200 volunteers to pull this thing off, but I always had a pretty clear vision how to do it. I knew we could do it and we could pull it off. And it's just opened us up wider for the 2022 midterms because, I mean, I think the industry is shifting this way anyway with the pandemic, but it's like, you know, we're hoping to have sold out shows where people can show up, you know, with their selfie from outside their polling place, but then we can webcast even wider and reach even more fans. You know, like I was speaking, um, at, you know, via Zoom um, at University of Minnesota Mankato. Well, I think they're like three hours from Minneapolis, you know, so those students can't always get to shows. Um, and I just think it's going to be a great way to be able to get to all fans as well as and, you know, I'm sure you've heard this too. It's like there's plenty of like stay at home parents or disabled people or whatever that can't always get to shows and they've just been loving all these world class webcasts. So it'll be really nice to have a hybrid model and hopefully turn out as many people as possible to vote in future elections. I understand agree. And the other thing too, and, and that's why I know I've been asked that question by both artists and, and fans alike is about what what the live streaming landscape is going to be like once live events um you know come about again, especially when they come back to full capacity. And I totally agree with you. There are so many people that they either they physically cannot go to the show, um, they are too either too far away or just, you know, they're just unable to attend. But on top of that too, is that I can't tell you how many times I and I know you hear this all the time too, is okay, I don't want to pay for parking. Mm -hmm. It's a week night. I have work the next day. I don't feel like really going totally. out. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't necessarily want to go there then have to spend $10 for a drink. For like, sure. I've heard every single excuse in the book of, of why not to attend. And for me, live streaming is going, okay, sure, you don't have to come, but you can still join the webcast. Exactly. I love it. Totally. And even... Um, I remember like on election day for our big I voted webcast, it's like, I mean, 
I would have loved to have been with our team, definitely. But it's like I ordered Roberta's pizza in Brooklyn. It was so good, <laughs> you know? Oh, like, now I, you're making me jealous. And it's like, you know, like I had a clean bathroom, you know? There were there were many amenities that were available to me that would not be the case at a regular music festival per se. That's totally true. I'm also born and raised a New Yorker, so you're totally getting me jealous about the <laughs> Sorry. <pizza. laughs> it's totally good. Yeah, but... um. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think that it does open up all kinds of possibilities. And I think one of the things you mentioned earlier about I Voted, which I can also personally vouch for, is that because it went all online and because you were able to support so many artists, they gave opportunities for our artists to be a part of this too. And uh, all the artists had a, a strong uh, feeling about uh, the importance of voting um, and our, our right our, uh, right to um, to vote and we, that we should be exercising that right to vote. And it gave us the opportunity to be involved with something this important and large. And you're right. It's like, you know, literally you wouldn't have been able to support that number of artists if it was all physical locations. Absolutely. Yeah, we met amazing artists and we were able to really look at the data and, and make make an impact where, like I said, the size of venues can determine elections. Absolutely. So I would like to talk about uh, your book because you actually wrote a couple of books because of all of your incredible experience. But the book I want to uh, talk about specifically is your most recent one, which is uh, How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. You got it. So um, can you talk a, a little bit about what the book's about? Um, I'd love to go ahead and uh, let you plug in that book. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. I never set out to be an author um, with the first book, Interning 101. Um, I'd written an intern manifesto for our company because um, I felt like I was explaining things to interns over and over. And then I had a couple of great interns one summer and I said, hey, if I turn this into like a hundred page how-to book for you and your classmates, would this be helpful? And they were like, Yes. Um, so the second book, um, How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams, um, was information that I caught myself explaining to people over and over, you know, that wanted to get coffee to pick my brain and things like that. So it really, um, I feel like it's information that is out there, but I've never seen it put in order, which is basically from, um, you know, a release from recording to release from creation to execution. So you know, I would be speaking at conferences that artists and industry people are spending a lot of money to be at, and they're just kind of grasping at nuggets of information like, okay, this is what music publishing is. Okay, this is what PR is. But it wasn't really a linear path. Um, and the music industry was set up like decades ago in the 1950s or whatever um, to confuse artists. So, you know, if you're trying to teach something that was set up to be confusing um, and you're teaching it out of order, that's going to be incredibly difficult for the educator, for the student, and it's just a mess. So I wrote a really methodical um, process on how to do that because, um, like I said, I, I was just explaining it over and over. Um, so it's a number one Amazon bestseller. Um, I, I would have been thrilled if it helped one person, but um, what really warms my heart is seeing artists post about it, tagging other artists, sharing information. Um, you know, whether you're just getting started or you have, or you're 80 years old and have a massive catalog, um, it takes you th through the roadmap of, um, literally how to build a sustainable music career. And a lot of that started, you know, with the Dresden dolls and, and these jam bands that I worked with, um, growing up where, like I said, you build a business around the artists, you take care of each fan and, and you continue to grow that because I think the goal should be to be, you know, for music to be your career forever and not just like, oh, random hit song. Okay, now we're not popular. You know, it's just like, 
own and control your rights, collect data, know who your fans are. And then the second half of um, the title um, and collect all revenue streams came out of, um, I was sick of taking on national acts and finding money for them. And I just felt like if this is happening to artists that people have heard of, you know, then what about everyone else? So um, yeah, so I lay all that stuff out. It's also now a podcast. We just launched that um, a few weeks ago and I've handpicked guests to really breathe um, life into each chapter. Um, we just had um, Bon Iver's Justin Vernon on, although that was a recording from um, right before the pandemic. I, I was teaching at NYU at a management class, or I was teaching a management class at NYU, and I pulled the students on who their dream guest speaker would be, because I was like, you're going to get to know like people in my world, so who do you think is interesting and, and doing innovative things? And so Bonavere or someone from their management topped our poll. And I was like, you know, Justin's story is really important for what I'm trying to get across to you all. Because I, I had students who thought they had to be signed to record and distribute. And I was like, what wow. decade are we living in here? So, um, yeah, he was nice enough to do it. I just did like a crappy voice memo because um, I wanted to like critique myself. I never, I didn't plan on releasing that conversation. So long story short, the first chapter of the book is called Get Your Art Together because I'm sure you meet artists all the time that are always like focused on like PR and marketing and the stuff that comes after. But then they might say like, but I need a new drummer or I need to work on my vocals or whatever. And so I, I think it's imperative that you make music from your heart, from your soul. Like, you know, when that is ready to be shared with the world. I almost hesitated on even including that chapter because that felt so obvious to me. And I've had students be like, get your art together. I'll never forget that. So anyway, again, long story short, um, Justin Vernon really, um, you know, he brought chapter one to life without realizing it because that's what he was talking about. He was grinding it out so hard for years. He wanted it so badly, you know, and was buying like the indie touring Bible at Barnes and Noble and it wasn't until like, you know, he moved to North Carolina. I mean, most people know uh, this origin story, but, you know, his his relationship ended, his band broke up, he was just left with nothing. And then he went to his dad's cabin in northern Wisconsin and just let the music happen, you know, and that's when he recorded the first Bon Iver album and posted it to MySpace and it spread um, from there because it was all about the art. So anyway, we have guests like him, um, Image and Heap. Um, Donald S. Passman, Cam Franklin from The Suffers, um, Bandcamp founder, uh, Ethan Diamond, ASCAP's Loretta Munoz. Um, so a lot of really amazing people, like I said, and I, that I just handpicked to breathe life into um, each chapter. So it's, it's been really fun. That's incredible. And congratulations on launching your podcast, you. by the way. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that too about, um, you know, getting your art together, which I, I love that chapter title. That's fantastic. And it's so true. I mean, uh, from my own even personal experience, even this own podcast, I started just interviewing friends and family and people that I just knew. And some episodes I actually did end up releasing and you can tell it was really rough. But that was the whole point is that I wanted to get better and be more comfortable being a host. And so I took about a year just doing that, just like. Every time I had a chance, I would just go ahead and interview people, get used to, you know, how to record it, what, you know, what should I, how should I be formatting it, what questions should I be asking. I mean, that took time to really figure those things out before I decided to even launch the podcast. 
And honestly, it was because of the pandemic that I decided to launch it because I knew that a lot of our plans have now changed and I had more time on my hands than I originally had because none of ours were touring, none of us, none of the artists were recording at that point in time. So everything kind of shifted. So I decided, you know what, now's a really good time. And also because everyone was home. So it was a great time to launch a podcast, to get people to be guests on the podcast. So it was just the perfect timing for it. But it still took about a year before I even you released a single episode. It's so true. This is actually my second podcast. Um, I did one on my first book, Interning 101, which I, I never would have thought to do, to be honest. Um, a, net, a podcast network asked me to do it. And I was like, oh, that's such a great idea. So anyone who ever writes a book, turn it into a podcast. Um, and again, that network really taught me how to do it. Um, and the Interning 101 podcast is fine. I know there's a lot of schools that use it, but for this one, I have such a clear set vision and that's already why it's more successful than the first one, which is of course a huge lesson for like artists and all this stuff, right? Like you have to experiment, you have to work, you have to figure the stuff out. It doesn't just, I mean, Justin Vernon says this in, in my podcast episode, but you don't just come out of the womb, like writing amazing songs, right? And the same with podcasting or whatever you're putting out there in the world. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. And then, um, so yeah, so I guess what's, uh, what's next for you? Yeah. So, um, I, I'm not quite sure when this will air, but, uh, we're continuing to roll out, uh, episodes of the, how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams podcast. That'll run through like September or so. Um, but really I'm fully focused on, I voted moving forward. Um, we're doing a lot of fundraising this year. Um, breaking news. I, I, I want to do, I want to produce, um, and I voted webcast as a fundraiser one year before the midterm. So we'll do that in November of this year. And when we wrap the, um, how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams podcast, we're then going to launch, a, a hashtag I voted podcast where I'll be interviewing industry folks and artists. And, and, I, and that one, I do want to be ongoing. The current podcast, like I said, is, is the podcast version of the book. So yeah, just fully focus on I voted moving forward, supporting um, and also supporting our team at Collective Entertainment in, in any way that I can. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. Can't wait for all those things. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily. I really do appreciate your time. Oh, it was my pleasure. And I'm so glad we finally got to do this. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening to The 8020 Show. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow. If you enjoyed the episode or this podcast overall, please leave us a review or comment on our socials, which you can find us at 8020records on pretty much all platforms. You can also check us out on our website at www.8020records.com. And as always, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.